if you ever wondered, what, did, what would Jesus get up and preach about if he had a Sunday service like ours today? Then look no further than reading through the Sermon on the Mount, because that is literally what Jesus would get up and preach about. And so he's concluding the message now. He started that conclusion last week, and there's three types of people he concludes with. And last week, we talked about false teachers. This week, we talk about false confessions. Next week, we talk about false hearing. And so this is how Jesus concludes this message, to talk about the three types of ways that we can get this wrong, but also how to get it right, and to truly hear and to do and to teach what he is speaking about. And so we're going to be in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. You can read along on the screen with me. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a lot in here. Um, so Jesus starts this out with something that is, is quite gripping to me, uh, and if you've followed along, you've been coming here for a while, then it should grip you as well, this, this thought. He says, not everyone who confesses him as Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's rough. Not everyone who confesses him as Lord is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why is that? And this is why. He says this, because Confession without obedience is not true confession in Christ. That's what he's getting across here. This is a huge theme in Scripture, and we're going to read some other Scriptures to look at this. But confession, if we say, Jesus, you are my Lord, but then we do not obey him, then we have not truly confessed him as Lord. There must be outward evidence of an inward conversion if our confession is to be true. There has to be. So a lot of people get this wrong. They think, in order for me to get saved, I need to be good, and then I can confess Christ and get saved, and that is false. You don't have to be good to confess Christ. But in order for your confession, it's true, it's on the other end of that confession that there needs to be obedience and evidence of that confession. So you can come to God however you want, whatever life circumstance, however dirty, no matter what you've done, if you are, and we see murderers confess Christ in the Bible, we see people that committed adultery confess Christ in the Bible, we see prostitutes confess Christ in the Bible, and they are saved. But we see a different life after the confession and the faith in God. There must be outward evidence of inward transformation. There cannot be just a confession of Jesus as Lord and then living the same way. Jesus says that is a false confession. And we're going to read James. For everybody going through Bible study, this is a big ooh-ooh to all you guys. You just read this on Wednesday, and we're going to go through it again. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. 
This is what James is trying to get across. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works or does not produce works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. See, faith is proved by your actions. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Oof. See, I love, I love that at the end. We'll get into that in a second. See, your works, as James says it, or your fruit, as Jesus says it, shows truly where your heart lies in its faith. Right? James says works. Jesus says fruit. But they are communicating the same message. That your fruit of your life communicates the confession of your heart. You cannot have a faith that does not have fruit. Because if you have faith that does not have fruit, then you do not have true faith. And James gives this practical, practical example. And this is a great example because, you know, I'm incredibly guilty of this. Somebody says, hey, you know, something happened and, you know, we're, we're going through a tough time. And it's like, okay, brother, I'm going to pray for you. You know, praying for their tough time. Amen. And then just I go about my daily life. But James says, someone comes to you and they're hungry and you're like, okay, let me pray for that hunger. You know, God, I pray that you fill this person's stomach with food. Great prayer. But what would even be better is if you went and bought that person a meal and fulfilled that prayer. See, that is a faith, James says, that I can get behind. That is a faith that truly shows a conversion of the heart. That is a faith that says this. Man, God has done something in my life where I can let go of what I have and give to a brother or a sister that is in need so that they don't walk away hungry. So James is saying, what good is your faith if all you can do is just say, well, I hope you get meal, but you have the means to provide, to provide that meal. What good is your faith? Or better yet, is your faith in Jesus real? if you do not take care of the needy, right? This is very practical. And sometimes we don't like church getting this practical because that means I actually have to go and do something afterwards. Something in my life has to change. There, there, there is an immediate evidence for me to work out my salvation and what it means in my life and to see the transformation of my faith come alive and work in action. See, believing in Jesus is different than just putting, it, than putting your faith in him as Lord and Savior. And how do we know that? Because the demons believe. 
They believe in Jesus. They believe he's the son of God. They, they know everything that he did. James says the demons believe and they even shudder. There's, a, there's an element of fear that they have towards him and who he is. So that is not enough to just say, well, I know what he did. I believe that that happened. True faith speaks to an inward conversion that changes who we are. Scripture says that we leave the old self behind and we enter into a new person. That new person is full of fruit and good works. John 14, 21 says this, those who love me are the ones who obey my commandments. Those who love me are the ones who obey my commandments. There is a faith and an action that Jesus is talking about here. See, true faith in Jesus, what? It leads to obedience in him. Jesus says, the one who enters into the kingdom will be the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is the one. So we can say, Lord, Lord, all we want. But if it doesn't lead to inward transformation, then are we having true faith in Christ? And this is, you know, this is why I struggle with something Christians do called the salvation prayer. This is why I struggle with it. I struggle with it. I read a, a statistic once, pretty funny. If, if all, so I, you know, evangelists in, um, in Africa in the early 2000s, they would, in the late 90s, would constantly be sending reports back. You know, we did a crusade and this many thousand people got saved. And so a curious person was like, okay, I'm going to start tallying all these numbers, you know, from the last couple of decades of newsletters. And they realized Africa was saved everybody three times over. How is that possible? Because a lot of times we just say, well, say this prayer with me real quick. And if you say it, you're saved. We slap them on the head, amen, and then we send them home. And listen, I've seen people come to church, respond to an altar call, and they confess Jesus, and their life is deeply changed. And this is why I said I struggle with it. But I've also seen people that have come, that have prayed their prayer, and then thought they were saved. And that, to me, is where the danger is. Because they say, well, I, I prayed this prayer, but they lived the same way. There was no evidence of that prayer in their life. And I hope this brings a little bit of an element of fear. Because the afterlife is real. Eternity with heaven, in heaven with Jesus is real. And eternity in hell is real. And so there should be a part of us that says, is my confession leading me to obedience in Jesus? Does it lead me to follow him? Or does it lead me into a false security like these people did here? See, a prayer doesn't get you into heaven. Faith in God that leads you to obedience is what gets you into heaven. Faith in God that leads to inward transformation that changes who you are is the sign of true faith that when you stand before God in judgment... 
and he's looking over your life. And he sees the sin, he sees the good and the bad. And you realize you were never good enough. But Jesus says, I'm sorry, but you have to judge me on his behalf. See, in order for that to happen, for then God to look at the sacrifice of Jesus and to look at his perfection and say, I will judge you on his life, on his standard, on his sinlessness, that takes true faith in what he did on our part. And when we understand what Jesus did, his sacrifice and his life and all the ways that he cares for us and lived and died for us and conquered death for us that leads us to live a different life. It leads us to become image bearers of the king. I say, I want to be like that man. He forgave people who hated him, who spit on him, who cursed at him, who did literally killed him. Say, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. God, I want to be like that, that people that spit on me, that look down on me, that, that hate me, that don't care for me, that maybe wrong me purposefully, that I would pray for their eternal salvation and forgiveness. So it is not a prayer, but as James put it, he says, faith without works is dead. But then the, the question arises that I can see many people saying, but, but what if we prophesied in your name, Jesus says? You know, what if we cast out demons in your name? What if we do miracles in your name? Surely that means that we will enter in. And Jesus says this, he says, you say you've done all this, and then I will declare, or that Greek word, I will confess. I love what Jesus is saying here. I will confess this. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want this to change your life right now. Because when this settled into my heart, it changed my life. It literally changed the trajectory of, of everything. My prayer life, what I longed for, what I wanted in life. And this is it. You know what Jesus is describing here? He is describing the gifts of the Spirit. To prophesy, to do miracles, to cast out demons. He is, he is describing somebody that operates in the gifts of the Spirit. And what happens is too often we confuse the gifts of God with the fruit of God. And that's what Jesus is determining here. When we think of people that are really godly, right, you think, you know, this guy on TV or this woman who does this. When we think of people who are really godly, who do we think about? We think about, man, if somebody can prophesy, tell you about your life, something that you never told somebody before, that person must be godly. Man, if somebody, they can preach really well, man, that person must be godly. If somebody, if, if, if someone's sick comes to somebody and they pray over them and they're healed, man, I want to be like that person because they must be close with God. I struggled with this a lot growing up because that was, that was my prayer. Man, you grow up, 
with, with, with the parents that I grew up, you know what my bedtime stories were? My bedtime stories were not normal bedtime stories, you know, where you read like fairy tales and things like that. My dad would read me biographies of the great revivalists of all time. So my bedtime stories were biographies of John Wesley and John G. Lake and William Branham and Oral Roberts and Simple McPherson, these amazing men and women, Smith Wigglesworth. This, for years, this is all I consumed as a kid before I went to sleep. And then he would also throw in some of C.S. Lewis the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, and, and Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> and so as a kid, I would just, that, that is what I wanted to do. If I could have one thing in life, God, I want to walk in these amazing gifts. This is, this is the epicenter of my Christianity, to heal people, to prophesy, to have the gift of wisdom and of faith that Jesus says literally to move a mountain and it is removed. But I realized something as I got older, that really what I wanted was power. What I wanted was I wanted to be like these men and women who their names were immortalized in my heart. What I wanted was I wanted someone to write books about me one day, about the great adventures of Justin Matera. That maybe one day in 50 to 100 years, a father would sit down with his son at night and read the biography of Justin Matera. And if I started to become honest with myself, really, what I, I wasn't looking for the glory of God in my life. I was looking for the glory of Justin. And I became like Simon the Magician in Acts 8, where it says that he believed in Jesus, and then he started following the apostles around, and he saw them start to do amazing miracles and wonders, and then what did he do? He said, how do I get this power? Can I buy it? And he tried paying them for the gifts of the Spirit, and Peter looks at him, and he says, you are going to go to hell unless you repent because of your evilness and wickedness and trying to buy the gifts of the Spirit. I was like Simon where I was using God so that I can be all powerful and almighty and all glorious. But if I went to heaven, he would say, I did not know you, even though I thought with all my heart, my desires were godly. Whew. I'm preaching right now. Come on, Paul testifies to this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, read along with me. In verse 1, I remember when I read this with godly eyes for the first time. I'll never forget it. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. How many times have I been a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal in my life where I would pray in tongues one minute, speak in the language of heaven, and then curse somebody out the next minute for getting me angry. I was a noisy gong. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, even to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I am a martyr, but have not love, 
I gain nothing. Do we get this? Do we, do we understand this? That so often as a church we look at the fruit of godliness being the gifts of God and not the actual fruit of God. That we look at the miracles and the faith and the tongues and the prophecy and we say, man, if I only could have that. But we do not ask for love. If I speak in tongues, it means nothing. If I do not know how to be kind to someone who irritates me. Knowing mysteries about somebody's life that they never told anybody. If I prophesy over someone, it means nothing. If every time someone screams at me, I scream back. Being able to look at a mountain and say, be moved, and it moving out of my way because of my amazing faith means nothing if I have not learned to serve others' needs above my own needs. Right, and then Paul takes it to the ultimate. He says, even if you are martyred, even if you are burned, because they were, many of them were martyred this way during Paul's time, even if you gave the ultimate sacrifice, You gain nothing if you have not learned to love. See, verse 4, Paul goes on. He says, this is love. This is, this is love. And we, we preach this at every wedding you can imagine, at all these different occasions. But we don't understand the crux of what Paul is really saying here. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See, this, this famous passage, Paul is telling people, this is what Christianity is all about. This is not just for marriage ceremonies. This is not just for nice times when we get together. This is the crux of the works of our relationship with God. This is the fruit of who we are after we confess Jesus in faith. This is what becomes of our life. We stop being less irritable. We stop needing to get our own way all the time. We start having hope in things. We, we start looking at things and not envying somebody else for getting ahead when we, we're not. We stop boasting about everything that we have and everything that we are because we realize how much we aren't. This is the evidence of Jesus Christ working on the inside of you. That's why I stopped getting impressed with miracles. I stopped getting impressed with prophecy, with how many hours someone prays in tongues because I could tell you I've seen people pray in tongues hours and then after beat their kids to a living pole, after scream at their spouse to a point of just death, 
I've, I've seen people just, they, they prayed in tongues after and then go and, and just womanize or do X, Y, and Z. And it's just like, that does not impress me anymore. I don't care that you have these amazing gifts. What I want to see is the fruit of God in your life. Someone's character over 50 years is way more impressive than someone who can heal somebody in a moment. How God has changed you through and through the, the tough and through the hard. How he's purified you in the fire like gold. That. And that you did not fall away. You did not curse his name. But instead you rejoiced. That is what impresses me. Those are the women and men that I want to be like as I grow older. See, if your actions do not change Jesus and Paul and James and John, all these guys are saying the same thing. It doesn't matter what you confess because it doesn't mean anything. You can cast out a demon, who cares? You healed a broken leg, what does that matter? Jesus says you can cast out demons, you can prophesy. Paul says you, you can be a martyr, you can move a mountain, you can pray in tongues. James says you can have faith, but they all agree without the fruit of God in your life, all those things are meaningless. Galatians 3.22 literally says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is it. It is love, it is joy, it is peace, it is patience, it is kindness, it is goodness, it is faithfulness, it is gentleness, it is self-control. If the Spirit dwells inside of you, if you have put your true faith in Jesus, I can tell you right now, you will have peace. You will have peace that surpasses understanding. Peace that doesn't make sense for your life situation and the scenario you find yourself in. I can promise you right now, you will have joy. Joy in the midst of a hard life. Joy in the midst of good times and bad times. You will have joy. You will have patience. This is one I particularly pray for a lot. I'm a very impatient person. Everything from my driving to my parenting to my husbanding to my being a child of parents, all of it. But I thank God that I'm a very different kind of impatient I am today than I was 10 years ago. And I know I will be a very different kind of impatient 10 years from now than I am today because it's that refiner's fire. It's that working out of the salvation. You will have self-control. Tell me you need that as a word from God to you today. That faith in him will mean an outworking of the fruit of the spirit. Do you know something about fruit? It doesn't grow overnight. You know it takes seasons for a tree to grow and then for it to bear good fruit. 
So I I pray that is a word of encouragement for you if you are looking for self-control in your life, if there's things in your life that you have found that are habits that you always go to and you have not had the power, the willpower to resist these things in your life, just know that your faith in God and the working of his spirit out in your heart and in your mind and the renewal of all things is working out fruit of the spirit in your life that will turn into self-control for you to say no. If you are always angry at people and at things and you can't stop the anger of your heart and you are constantly attacking this person and that one at work and at family and and you hate it afterwards, then this is a word of encouragement for you that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And God promises joy for those that have faith in Him. And again, Fruit does not come overnight. It takes time to grow and to cultivate and to come. But it will. Have patience. It will. So what is our highest priority as Christians? It's not miracles, although I desire and I pray for them. I want to see people get healed. It's scriptural. It's biblical. It's not tongues, although I, I, like Paul said, I pray in tongues more than everybody in that church that he was talking to. But that's not the highest goal. I may be able to say that here. I may pray in tongues more than everybody here, but that is not my highest goal. It's not all knowledge, although those things are beneficial. It's not all wisdom. But what? Becoming conformed to the image of God with the evidence of his fruit. That Jesus could hang on the cross And can still say to people that were killing him and were praising his death, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. Allowing your faith to lead you to obedience to God. Obeying him and his word. You don't read the Bible as a suggestion book anymore, but you read it as a guidebook for lifestyle. Right? That you start praying, Father, teach me how to care for the homeless in my neighborhood. Father, teach me how to love the prideful liberal and the obnoxious Republican. That, that's true working out of the fruit right there. Now, when Christmas time comes, I don't fight with my family just because they have an alternate view than me. Right? Show me how to accept people and love them even when they are mad at me. Teach me how to repent before them for things I've done wrong, even if they're going to lord it over me. Show me how to love somebody in the midst of a rough day, maybe in the midst of a rough life. That's my prayer, not only for me, but for our church. And we can say, yeah, we want 
when we start praying for the Spirit of God to flow, when we start praying for revival, when we start praying for God to open the windows of heaven, that what we see is not just a main insaneness of the gifts of God, but what we see is people conformed to the image of God, praising Him in love and joy and peace and patience and self-control. We see people conform to the image of God, that we would start loving our neighbor as ourselves, that we would start treating others as we would want to start being treated by them. That when we think of revival and God coming down, that we think of people caring for one another in a way that can only mean that God is true and that he is glorified. That when we start praying, God, I want to see you work in my life, that the first thought that isn't, Lord, that I can prophesy or I can see someone get healed, but the first thought is, God, that your fruit would be evidence of the salvation that you have worked in my heart. That I would be loving, that I would be joyful, that I would be patient, that I would be kind, that I would be good towards others. That I would not be boastful, that I would not be irritable, that I would not have to get my own way, Father. This would be the outworking of your spirit in my life. Why don't you stand with me? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and its grace that covers us right now. Lord, not to condemn, but to redirect. Lord, I just picture a church that loves. Not that wishy-washy love, Father, but deep love, love that confronts, love that is there in hard times, love that goes way beyond the surface level of opinions, Father. Love that is like true brotherhood and sisterhood that is deeper than blood. Father, that as we pray for your spirit and your kingdom to come, that what will we see, Lord, is a more patient and a more kind and a more loving people here on earth as it is in heaven. That we would see people that reflect your goodness. and your kindness. You're slow to angerness. In Jesus' name we pray.